The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. This morning's reading is in Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. If you would stand with me, please. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Thank you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for gathering us here this morning, and we thank you for your holy word. Lord, I want to pray for those who are sick in our midst. think particularly of uh, Andy Serfolio, Lord, we ask that you'd heal her from um, the viruses she's enduring right now. Um, many others also, Lord, it's a season when uh, colds and flu and different viruses are um, plaguing us. Lord, we ask that um, these experiences would um, make us feel our need of you in a fresh way. Um, we thank you that... Um, that even though we're in a hurry to get up and moving and, and active, you're not in a hurry, and your purposes aren't thwarted by sickness or injury, um, bodily ailments of all kinds. Thank you that you still have purpose in the midst of these, God, and we ask that you'd give us all uh, patience and endurance and um, that we would feel a, a greater dependence on you in these times. And Lord, I do pray that you would slow us down in this Christmas season when our culture just um, ramps up its speed exponentially, I pray that we as the people of God would slow down our speed and we would be able to meditate, that we would be able to reflect and to look forward in hope. So we ask that you would even enable us to do that right now in this sermon. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Now, likely we've all heard the nativity story many times, many, many times. And so we've grown a bit numb to the sheer madness of how Jesus' arrival on the scene played out. I mean, if you're going to write an origin story of a supposedly cosmic king, this is not how you would do it, convincingly at least. 
Now keep in mind that in the ancient world, they had tons of myths about heroes who were supposedly descended from the pagan gods. And these tales all included great fantastical detail and shocking and graphic dialogue. And then they always ended with everyone instantly recognizing the miraculous arrival of someone special. And this account is distinctly different from all of that popular, we can't say trash TV, but um, trashy soap opera scrolls of the time, uh, because this is written as historical fact, just plain and unadulterated. And so even as I was studying this passage this past week, it really bolstered my faith just to see the simplicity, the lack of apology for the awkward social situation, the, just the wisdom of God. How unknowable is his mind, how unsearchable are his plans until they come perfectly to pass. And so I hope that as we meditate on these few brief verses this morning, they won't produce in you a predictable Christmas sentimentality, but rather a radical trust for the future. Because here in the past, predictable human history was interrupted and forever changed. Now this account starts off matter-of-factly. just says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. You'll notice that this narrative is largely from Joseph's perspective. The one in Luke is mostly from Mary's perspective. And we don't know if Joseph was still alive when Matthew was writing this, or when Matthew was Jesus' disciple. Did did Matthew interview G- Joseph? Did um, Joseph write down his experiences and then Matthew had that writing? Or did Jesus himself tell Matthew about his dad's perspective on all this from, from uh, the vantage point Jesus had heard about from Joseph while he was growing up? We just don't know. But in that day and culture, marriages would have been, for the most part, arranged. And for commoners, they would have occurred between people who lived in the same community. We know from the Gospel of Luke that Mary was from Nazareth, a small town, probably not more than 500 people up in the backwater district of Galilee. Now, with an arranged marriage for Mary and Joseph, it doesn't mean that they wouldn't necessarily have liked each other. Probably there was a base level of compatibility that their families had ensured, but it definitely wasn't the the, the level of comfort and familiarity that we would have when we get engaged. Likely Mary was a young teenager when this happened, and Joseph might have been a good bit older than her. That's just how it worked back then. An engagement was a formal contract. It's a little bit different than how we view it, because in a legal sense, they were already considered married. The engagement would be entered into, and then up to a year was taken in preparation for the formal wedding, and then only after the wedding ceremony would the couple then consummate the marriage and move in together. So they had a year of prep just to say goodbye to their single lives, to prepare mentally and emotionally for life together, and then the husband would be busy during that time getting the house ready. Now, as you might imagine, the worst possible situation that could happen to Joseph during that engagement time is exactly what happened, or at least what he thought had happened. But we're explicitly told that Mary had not been unfaithful. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Notice that it attributes the child to the work of the Holy Spirit specifically. Now, it could have just said, 
God caused life to generate within Mary. But it doesn't. It says the Holy Spirit for at least two reasons. One, like we talked about last week, Matthew wants us to understand that what is unfolding in Jesus is a new creation. Just like the Spirit hovered over the water in Genesis chapter 1, serving as the agent through which creation happened, so also here with a new creation. And then secondly, in those crude man-made pagan stories, some god like Zeus or Venus would manifest themselves in a way where they would actually have relations with the human parent, resulting in a demigod like Achilles or Hercules, and that is distinctly not what is happening here. Life is being created within the womb of a virgin without any physical copulation. And as we see throughout the the New Testament, Jesus is not like Hercules or Achilles. He's not half God, half human. He is fully God, fully human. How does that work? Well, you don't need to know. If you did, it would be told to us in Scripture, but I suspect that this mystery, which theologians call the hypostatic union, this mystery is beyond our comprehension, even if we could be told. So we don't need to busy ourselves with questions like, now did Jesus get all of his chromosomes from Mary? I don't know. Where, where did Adam get his chromosomes? So virginal conception, that that was no more plausible in the first century than it is now. You know, sometimes we might think like, well, we're so much more advanced now than they were then, so of course the ancients could fall for something like this. But no, don't you see, at that time also, no one would say it was scientifically possible. At that time, as also now, the real question is, are the observable patterns of what has happened previously the sole determinant of what could be happening right now? Are we so certain that the universe is a closed system? And at some level, you either believe that there is a God who created this material substance that we see and who can alter it as he pleases, or you don't. If you can't bring yourself to believe in a virginal conception, then nothing I can say is going to get you past that anti-supernatural bias that you carry around in your presuppositions. But if you're willing to accept that something totally unique could have happened in the person of Jesus, then I think that you'll see in Scripture that there's really no one like him. And the more you look at him, look at his words and his actions and his meaning, then the more you will have absolutely no reason to doubt the virgin birth. Understandably, Joseph himself didn't get there immediately. Verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, Since that pledge to be married was legally binding, that's why not going through with the marriage would require a divorce. And that could be easily obtained by Joseph, since there seemed to be pretty clear evidence here of adultery. If he did that, this would ruin Mary's family's reputation probably forever. It would likely ruin them economically as well. Mary might find herself out on the street without friends. Her life could even be in danger. According to the letter of the law, Joseph had every right to expose Mary and divorce her openly, angrily. So why is he called just for not doing that? 
Well, maybe because he couldn't be certain what happened. Was she raped and then she went crazy and became delusional? Did he really want to see her suffer more if that was the case? Or even if he didn't believe her, did, did, did he have just the slightest fraction of hope that she could be telling the truth? Even if not, maybe the sort of justice that Joseph embodies is one that reflects not just the statutes of God, but also the character of God. As his son Jesus would command in Matthew chapter 5, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Any way you look at it, Joseph's commitment here to be as gentle as possible in the face of an apparent betrayal is beautiful. He controls his natural impulse to shut down the gossip and to protect his own honor at all costs. Wouldn't it be beautiful if it was said of you or of me that we were a person who always responded to betrayals and hurts and misunderstandings much more gently than anyone would expect of us? And in the midst of that soft response, who knows what surprising new perspective may be revealed to you that otherwise you would have blown past to your own harm. Like in verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now dreams can be just that, right? Dreams. But when an angel of God speaks to you directly in a dream, I I don't know firsthand, but I have a feeling that it's not quite as easily dismissed as just, you know, erratic brain activity. And the angel calls him Joseph, son of David. Remember, uh, Jesus was twice descended from King David, from Mary, according to the flesh, and from Joseph, legally. So being addressed here as son of David, that definitely would have gotten Joseph's attention because you know, the long line of Davidic kings had long ago been lost into obscurity. But by invoking that title here, the angel is saying, hey, pay attention, Joseph. Your family's destiny is about to play out here. And through adoption, Joseph's legal right to the throne of David, even though such a thing no longer existed, would pass to Jesus. Just as, interestingly enough, Augustus, the the emperor of Rome at this same time, would adopt his heir, Tiberius, to be the next emperor. Isn't that cool? Well, this child's origin, as from the Holy Spirit, is emphasized a second time here in the angel's message. And outside of this chapter, the only other place that the virgin birth is mentioned is in Luke chapter 1. So it's been said that the virgin birth has a very small footprint in the New Testament. It's only mentioned three times, but so much depends upon it, including the deity and the sinlessness and the atonement of Christ. The virgin birth is essential to Jesus' identity. So don't ever let someone suggest that they're a Christian, but they don't believe in the virgin birth. Well, You can't really believe the very next verse either then about Jesus saving his people from their sin because without divine origin, Jesus is just another man. And if ordinary people can resolve the problem of sin, well, why don't I just do that for myself? What we're left with in that case isn't any good news, just the shouldering of an impossible burden. 
The name Jesus was very common at that time. I mentioned last week how it was a time of great messianic expectation. Well, Joshua was the big general of 1,400 years earlier, and he had driven the enemies from the land and given Israel rest. So many good Israelite young couples fantasized that their son could perhaps be the one to drive the Romans away. The name Joshua means Yahweh saves. And the Jewish people desperately wanted Yahweh to save them from their oppressors. The Hebrew for Joshua, Yeshua, when translated to Greek, became Iesus, which we reflect in the name Jesus. So Jesus was on the top of the baby name list. With all these little Joshua slash Jesuses running around, what makes this one special? Well, we're told he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. Jesus will save. But his name means Yahweh saves. So which is it? This is a hint that the actions of Jesus will actually be inseparable from the very acts of God. In Psalm 130, it says, O Israel, hope in Yahweh, for with Yahweh there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he himself will save Israel from all his sins. He himself will save Israel from all his sins, and yet here it says Jesus will do it. So Joseph would have understood that the mercy of God, which they'd heard about and sung about for centuries and millennia past, was now going to be brought about in a definitive way through this son, Yahweh saves. And he will save his people from their sins. Who are his people? Is it just ethnic Jews? If so, why are we here today? Well, according to Jesus' genealogy, it's not just ethnic Jews. We saw multiple non-Jews woven in and honored in Jesus' very lineage. So who are his people? That's a question that we're going to keep coming back to throughout the book of Matthew. In chapter 3, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the most Jewish of all Jews, they're told off by John the Baptist. He sees that they're smug. They think that anything God is up to in his people, they must be at the center of it. But John says, don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So being a religious insider doesn't mean you're among Jesus' people. And in chapter 8, when he heals a servant at the request of a Roman centurion, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. Well, this sort of composite people is very different than what most Jews had assumed God would save. And so we start to see that while Jesus starts with a focus on ethnic Israel, the ultimate people he has in mind includes those who will be woven into that people, that people that has been pruned of unrepentant hypocrites. So Jesus' people that he will save are a people with a radical trust in their king and who are transformed through that trust into people whose lives bear good fruit, which means that if you are not Jewish, if you're not even from a family that worships God at all, 
you can become part of Jesus' people simply by trusting him like the centurion did. And it means that if you presume upon God and your heart is dead toward God while you think you're more acceptable than others, then you can be cut off from the people of God just as easily as those Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus will save his people from their sins. Jesus is also unique because he will save his people from their sins. From their sins. This is totally different than the deliverers God had raised up in the past. I mean, Moses was told he would bring God's people out of Egypt, out of slavery. Samson's mother was told that she would conceive and bear a son and he would begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. But to not... To, to, to save a people, not from oppressors and armies, but from sin, that was utterly unique. Now, from another vantage point, it is being saved from oppression and from our enemies. Just like the confession today said in the words of, of Zechariah, um, we are being saved from our oppressor, Satan, and his minions. We are being saved from the oppression of sin in our lives but it's different. It's getting at the root instead of just the surface level manifestation of our enemies. So this was utterly unique, totally different from what all those parents with infants named Jesus even suspected would be God's plan for that hour. And we should notice here that the salvation Jesus brings is not just from the punishment of sin. It's salvation away from sin itself. So don't miss that. Jesus didn't come so that you could just be forgiven and then remain under the sway of sin. He did come to free us from the penalty of sin. He also came to free us right now from the power of sin. And that's what we see working itself out in our sanctification by the Holy Spirit. And then one day, Jesus will return and he'll bring with him a new heaven and a new earth. Basically, creation will catch up with the newness that's already been present in the children of God. And so on that day, we will then be saved from the presence of sin forever. So in order to understand the gift of Jesus, we have to see all three aspects of our salvation clearly. We were saved from the penalty of sin so there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we are also being saved from the power of sin. The grip of sin over us is being progressively broken. As First John puts it, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning continually. But he who was born of God, Jesus, protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. And one day we will be saved from the presence of sin. Heaven will be opened. Behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and he will come to finish making all things new. There's a song that I really like by the band Over the Rhine that imagines um, singing a lullaby to the Christ child, and it, it connects his first coming with his second coming with this imagery from Revelation 19. And they sing, Hush now, baby, one day you're going to ride. Hush now, baby, your white horse through the sky. And then the lyrics turn to us and say, No bridle will he be wearing. His unshod hooves they will fly. Keep a watch this Christmas for that white horse in the sky. 
and even the promise of that day of final deliverance, that's included in how Jesus saves us from our sin. But how would this baby, born to a simple girl in compromising circumstances, how would he free his people from the penalty and the power of sin? How would he obtain the authority to one day descend from heaven with a cry of command and gather his own away from the presence of sin forever? The rest of Matthew will explain just that. For now, let's keep in mind that this is the center of Jesus' mission. This is the one thing he came to do, not to deliver from human oppression, not merely to heal symptoms of sin in this world, like sickness, hunger, relational brokenness. He does address all of those derivatively, but Matthew wants us to see right at the start that sin is humanity's core problem. Sin, in other words, moral failure is your core problem. Sin is my core problem. It may feel like you have other problems, divorce, cancer, a bad boss, but nope, sin is the only thing that can ruin us forever because it separates us from God who is the source of all good. And that is why Jesus came, because we cannot save ourselves. And you probably know that you can't save yourself from the penalty of sin. I think everyone in this room knows that. But Christian, do you also receive the fact that you can't save yourself from the power of sin? Jesus didn't come so that we could feel forgiven and then fix ourselves. He came to save you from sin. There's a lot we could say about that. But it all has to do with God's presence, which is the piece that Matthew gets after next. He interprets the angel's announcement saying, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this is a quote from Isaiah 7, 14. If you remember, we looked at that passage last Advent season, and it's one of those prophecies where there's this immediate partial fulfillment given for Isaiah's day, but then the bigger part of God's promise remained awaiting a fuller fulfillment in the future. And that could happen because the Hebrew word for virgin, usually meaning a true maiden, could sometimes be used to mean just a young woman. And so in Isaiah's day, it seems that a certain young woman gave birth to a child, and the timing of that served as a sign to King Ahaz that God was with Judah and would deliver the kingdom from its enemies, which he did shortly thereafter. But as the book of Isaiah goes on, this theme of a mystery child is filled out even more wondrously, and it it soon becomes clear that this prophesied child is actually a final solution coming from God. And so despite the near fulfillment of Isaiah 7 in the day of King Ahaz, it's no surprise for us to see a fuller fulfillment here in Jesus, the far descendant of King Ahaz. He is born of a true virgin. And he doesn't just serve as a sign that God is with us. He is God with us. So we have here in Emmanuel essentially a second name or a nickname for Mary's child. If you don't feel like calling him Yahweh saves, okay, just call him God with us. Both names get after who he is. This is God 
in human flesh. And both names get after what he does. He saves his people and he stays with his people. Now, often scholars spend a lot of time debating about the arguments for God. Think about, well, this is why God logically must exist. Or, (coughs) excuse me, maybe we think about intelligent design and we argue it that way. And those apologetics definitely have their place. But the simplest way to know that there is a God is to look at the person of Jesus. That's why these four Gospels are written so that you might see him rightly and believe, because Jesus is God with us. In the person of Jesus, you must decide about God. You can't ignore him. He's right there at the center of history. You have to do something with him. You can reject him, or you can welcome him, or sure, you can take time to investigate further, but you don't have the option of just ignoring the person of Jesus Christ. And if you will accept him as legitimate, as Joseph had to do, then you will experience the imminence of God in Jesus. He will come close. He will dwell with you. You will be in his family. And like Joseph, if we will accept this Jesus as God with us to save us from our sins, then we can experience close relationship with God. And this is what the whole Bible is about. You can't have true deliverance from evil without it leading you into relationship with God through Jesus. And you also can't have any relationship with God up there without being saved by Jesus. So to think otherwise is just to reject everything in this book. But God with us, Emmanuel, that's not just it's not just a challenge to Joseph or challenge to us. It's also a promise, right? It's a promise that maybe you need a reminder of today. We can imagine that Joseph would have a front row seat to understand the joy that could come from this righteous child in the midst of his family. You can think about how Jesus' presence right from the start would have influenced Joseph. It would change the way that he would think and feel and respond in and outside the home also. How would Joseph be impacted as he saw the Son of God respond with compassion to the suffering of others? Or as he responded, as Jesus responded with patience to his own suffering? It's not a reaction very common in kids, right? Think about how um, Joseph would see Jesus embrace weakness right from the start, even as a frail baby. Embracing weakness without internalizing humiliation or insecurity. Now, it's not that Jesus didn't cry, right? There would be tears. There would be toilet accidents. There would be maybe bullying from older kids. But all that wouldn't lead Jesus to wrong conclusions about himself or about others. Because Jesus' identity, right from the start, would be marked by original innocence and then would be further developed by meditating on God's words. And there would have been times when Jesus, maybe unintentionally, would rebuke his parents. Or maybe would deeply encourage them, simply by stating the truth of the matter from God's perspective. And Joseph would see his boy respond to pain and challenge with courage. 
and with trust in God the Father. And all that couldn't have helped but build up soft-hearted Joseph's faith. And if we have soft hearts, then the reality of Jesus' life in our world can't help but build up our faith and, and put flesh on how God really feels about our experiences and how God really is present and is enough to sustain his people in this world. Jesus' disciples would get an even closer view, a fuller view of Jesus the man. He showed them that when God is with you, you don't have to fear sickness or storms or demoniacs or poverty or politics or cruel and vindictive people. Ultimately, Emmanuel would show them that they don't even need to fear death or hell. And in Jesus, neither do you. So I hope that these sorts of reflections keep happening for us throughout our time in the Gospel of Matthew. That in Jesus, God is with us. He's observable. He's relatable. He's incarnate. He's bodily, he's not with us right now, clearly. He's in the throne room of the universe. But his Holy Spirit is with us to the very end of the age. And then we will be physically with Jesus. We will see him face to face in the flesh forever. Now, it's difficult to know how much of any of that Joseph could fathom just from this angel's announcement, but he clearly understood enough because we read that when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. He called his name Jesus. So this last verse tells us that Joseph obeyed right away. In fact, he goes further than what the angel commanded. He wants to avoid any suspicion that he was the biological father. And that's just a preview of how Joseph's life would really never again be straightforward. It would never, he would in some ways never be free for his plans to go unmodified. He had something really big to, to take care of um, with the presence of Jesus in his family. In the next chapter, we'll learn that Joseph would have to flee with his family for their lives and live as refugees for a, a season in Egypt. So as Joseph embraced this Christ child, it's true that in one sense he had to lay down everything, expectations for a normal family life, normal work, a normal reputation. And by faith, all who want to be linked to the Jesus story will have to do the same. This child would grow up to say, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. But he also promised, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Joseph and his new wife would find life through this child. He was the fulfillment of all their hope in God's ancient promises. And if Jesus is God himself entering human history, then there's one logical response. And that's to, like Joseph, totally rearrange your life's purpose and expectations to be in line with the mission of Jesus this baby came as a royal intrusion. He did then, and he still does now. He demands to intrude into your life, too, to challenge your view of what makes your time on this earth meaningful, to mess with your plans, not just to redecorate your life, but to knock down walls and completely renovate it. And there are really only two possible responses to that demand. Yes or no. 
So the most important question facing us today is, will you view Jesus as God entering human history, or will you view him as illegitimate? There is no third way. If you haven't been taking this claim seriously of that Jesus is God with us, then what better time than Christmas to pause and come to terms with him as he is? But if, as I suspect is true for most in this room, these concepts of Yahweh saves and Emmanuel, they just seem all too familiar to you, then you have to ask yourself, has your yes to him actually been a yes? Is your heart soft toward God's purposes as Joseph's was? Have you obeyed and submitted your life as Joseph did, or are you trying to have it both ways? If so, you are, in a sense, calling him illegitimate, that he doesn't have a right to interrupt the future you had in mind. And if that's you in any way, then I encourage you to pray to him right now. Say to him, Jesus, intrude into my life in any way you please. Keep saving me from the power and presence of sin. And where I've held your kingship at arm's length, be now even more fully God with me. So I want to close by us all praying together. Lord, we, we want to say to you that this is the one Christmas gift that we want. We want lives that are fully submitted to your purposes in us not begrudgingly, not resenting your chosen path. But instead, we welcome you unreservedly and we know that this is the path of joy. So cause that joy of your presence to mark our lives, God. To mark our deeds and our choices and all of our interactions because we have seen and we do believe that Jesus is God with us and we know that that means life to the fullest. So Lord, this Christmas, give us lives that are fully surrendered and let that result in the joy of your presence like never before. We ask it in Christ's name, amen.